not me. Hello and welcome to episode 48, that's way off isn't it? No, it's right, 48 of Ribbon of Memes, a podcast where we interrogate films previously described by other high school survivors as masterpieces. I am Nick and I am joined as ever by Roger. I killed the president of Paraguay with a fork. How have you been? <laughs> Typical week for you, really. Um, yeah. And we are, as you may have figured out, um, if you are a film buff, um, or, or indeed looked at the episode title, discussing George Armitage's uh, 1997 possible masterpiece, Gross Point Blank. Yeah, so George Armitage has uh, an interesting filmmaking history. <laughs> okay. In film, tell me further. Uh, well, yeah, he yeah, went to UCLA majored in economics and political science, tried to get a real estate license, uh, worked in the mailroom at 20th Century Fox. Um, it's a very traditional upbringing, isn't it? Associate producer on Peyton Place. But Roger Corman was slumming with the TV guys because the film guys wouldn't talk to him. Roger Corman again. So he met Corman. Uh, he left Fox to focus on film work. Uh, he wrote Gas. Okay. <laughs> uh, he, his first film he directed was Private Duty Nurses, which is about as exploitative as it sounds, but is not actual porn. It's a common exploitation. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, I know the type. So a, a combination of exploitation and hang on, we've got we've got some actual social social issues here. Um, directed Hitman, in which nobody involved is a hitman. Interesting. We've had worse titles for films, though. Uh, directed Miami Blues, which I suspect we're going to come back to. Um, and directed this. And shall we, shall we have an unhelpful summary of the plot? Well, an unhelpful summary of a plot is it's like everyone else's high school reunion, only with more murder. Maybe more murder. I mean, we have seen Heathers. <laughs> That's a fair point. They don't make it to the reunion, you know. This is the story of Martin Blank, who has become a professional hitman after some time being a uh, a spook, I think it's uh, suggested that he becomes for a little while. Um, well, I, 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 think, I think that's a hitman for the CIA as opposed to a freelance hitman. I, uh, but now is a freelance hitman and uh, is encouraged by his secretary to combine his latest uh, murdering job with his 10-year high school reunion. Because um, that can't go badly. Uh, it's it's, it's going to go absolutely fine. To, to meet his long-lost... Um, well, we'll come on to, uh, to, to who he meets, um, but he rekindles a romance with, uh, with an old high school sweetheart. In many ways, it is the spiritual successor to, um, John Hughes, uh, teen, com <laughs> teen hmm. comedy slash coming of age. In fact, it really is, uh, written from that point of view. I suppose that the film it's most, almost a direct sequel to is Say Anything, which was, Cameron Crowe, not um, John Hughes. Um, 
But at the end of Say Anything, um, the angsty teen decides not to join the army after all and to, to go off with his sweetheart. This seems like someone thought, <laughs> let's do the alternative film where he does go off with it, with the army. Um, well, uh, and, it, and indeed it was John Cusack in both films. I, I don't have uh, a lot of enthusiasm for yeah, high school John Hughes, etc. films in general, but it does strike me that this is generationally very much the same sort of people as the breakfast club as heathers yes who well, literally been... in, in john cusack who, who did star in a number of those films and it, it, it's the this same feeling of yeah you guys promised us the world and then you made damn sure we didn't get it <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing to me that struck me is i suppose 10 years actually seems to me like a blink of the eye i don't know why anyone would think so much had happened in 10 years but that's probably me getting old but it, I've never really understood the the whole uh, impulse to school reunion. I mean, I, I I keep up with two or three of the people I went to school with whom I quite like, and I have essentially no interest in meeting again the rest of them. Uh, one, one of them has been Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, <laughs> um, I wonder if yes, um, that one. <laughs> Facebook um, fulfills a lot of the kind of see what my life is like now, but it does it in a much more sort of artificial way. Mm, uh, perhaps so. Yeah, and it's interesting. And the film, I don't know, in a way explores that. Not very much explores it, but it also asks the question of why? Why would you do this? What are you going to get out of it? And according to this film, not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and possibly some murdering. Um, uh, it's also one of the first the first film we've watched that has actually some eighties nostalgia in it, and probably mm. the first film I remember having. 80s nostalgia because this is 1997 and particularly the music yeah 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 and it, it, you suddenly realize well the 80s was long enough ago to feel nostalgic <laughs> about it um, whereas now it's, it's kind of the de rigueur nostalgic decade whereas when i was growing up that was the 50s um, so that makes well I, th- I think it's moving on to being the 90s now but yeah it is you're, you're quite right with I, it's, it's my, my working theory on this i mean it's the same reason why it why it takes about 20 years for films like uh, science fiction to catch up with um written science fiction because if you want to write a book that doesn't follow the guidelines. You can just write it, and you know, if, if you're good, you get it published, and yes. lu- and lucky. Um, but if you want to make a film, you have to be in sufficient authority to persuade all these other people to finance your film, and so on. And that takes about twenty years to get from where you love this thing as as a young adult to yes. where you have enough power to get it made. And it helps if you're surrounded by other people who remember that decade yeah. enough to be nostalgic about it. Whereas the book, yes, you can just get rid. I think that's a very likely point. So the fact that this is uh, 10 years, it's, it's quite early, according to your theory, but it's yeah. certainly the first one I can remember. And it does, as I say, certainly in um, John Cusack, we have the actual star of some of those old... Um, some of those old 80s films he was he was kind of one of the poster boys for that kind of angsty teen outsider but oh so deep um uh particularly as i say in cameron crowe i've touched on cameron crowe before he he does tell the same sort of story every time he does tell it very well though um (laughs) i think say anything may have been his first one yeah um assuming i'm right in thinking it was cameron crowe that'd be embarrassing uh, if it isn't um you realize i have to check now (laughs) I'm pretty sure it is. It's the it's the one where John yes, Cusack yes, ends up in the rain holding up the uh, the uh, uh, the great enormous great. Um, uh, uh, I was going to say Walkman. I can't remember what they called now, but Hi-Fi. Ghetto Blaster. 
Ghetto Blaster, there we go. Um, well, that's, I've forgotten the term for it, that's uh, crazy. Okay, <laughs> so uh, we have, um, it's directed by um, George Armitage, who has a chequered history. It was written... Well, um, he, he's done very relatively few films, I mean, compared with the typical successful working director who's doing a film every year or two. Uh, he's done about six overall, seven maybe. So directed. Not, not I mean, prolific. he's a, he's a writer as well, but even so, yeah, so seven films overall. Um, wrote wrote about ten that got made, produced occasionally, but yeah, no, not not a one assumes that he's doing something else to keep body and soul together. Well, he's still eating, presumably, so yes, doing yeah. something. Now, I had a memory of this when we talked about doing it. I vaguely thought this was sort of John Cusack had a very heavy part of this in that he, like, I had a feeling it was one of those actor, sort of almost director and producer as well, but that's not the case. I don't know why I thought that, really, because he, he's certainly in it and he has a writing credit on it, mm. but he's not the main writer of uh, Gross Point Blank. Um, I, that was... And it was written, uh, who's the writer on this? Uh, Tom Yankovitz. Yes, who, who'd had, um, uh, it, it basically was just writing sort of autobiographically about his own 10 year reunion that decided it'd be better if he made it a hitman. Well, yes and no. Um, it gets a bit more complicated than that because, I mean, yes, he was inspired, uh, by that among other things, but he was also, um, yeah, working as a substitute teacher, um, he did deliberately shift it from, you know, he, he grew up in Sterling Heights, which oh, is, yes. which is a much more working class area. And, and Gross Point, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how much it covers in the film. It, it is basically one of the, um, higher class suburbs of Detroit. I mean, it seems, uh, you don't get a flavor of Gross Point particularly at all, other than it is just your generic high school town that we've seen in a number of other places. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the things that the, that the kids grew up to be, I don't think there's anything really distinctive about that. I get the impression it's largely a pun for the title. Well, um, sure, sure. Uh, mainly, uh, I, we have watched Point Blank on this podcast. <laughs> not, there's not a lot of similarities here to Point Blank, I must, I must say. Um, but there, well, should we, yeah, well... Um, I suppose we'll dig into the, the the meat of it a little bit. So this is a very, if we talk about the actors first, and, and we've talked about John Cusack a lot, because he is really central to the film. I, I um, think he does the, the fundamental thing right of playing it absolutely straight. He is not winking at the audience. He is not saying, ain't this ridiculous? And I, I often feel I'm, that the, the film that I first noticed this on uh, was the first Pirates of the Caribbean. Where yes, there are ridiculous things happening, but nobody in the film is is doing their little comedy turn. Now that is um, they're, they're playing it straight and then inviting you to laugh at them. That's right, and that is um, I think that's probably our favoured type of comedy. Rather than I suppose the alternative would be sort of mugging for the the, the camera, a bit like perhaps the Jim Carrey style of yeah, or, or uh, your, your pratfalls and stuff. Yes, exactly. Um, and it, uh, people are aware that they're in a comedy and trying to wring every laugh they possibly can out of every mm. scene. Well, I mean, I was I was thinking, have we done many comedies before? Because this is a comedy. This is a comedy more than anything else. Uh, the only yeah. one I could remember was Airplane, which is classically, you know, they're, they're actors that don't know that they are in a that don't know they're in a, a comedy, <laughs> and that's what's yeah. going on here. One one of the other things that uh, I always look for is 
the the jokes and the funny stuff flows from who the characters are rather than starting with a joke and saying right how can which character can we shove into this to make it work yes and again we i i think we probably both agree we much prefer that kind of character comedy well, i i'm i'm very, i i'm always interested in the the stories of the people well, that's why I, I, you know, I was wondering about other kind. But we we talked about Fargo, which has certainly has comedic elements in it. I want to compare this a bit to Fargo mm. because, uh, in some ways, because I think go back and listen to that previous episode if you haven't heard it. <laughs> <laughs> much as I enjoy this film, I do think it falls down in a number of ways that that Fargo doesn't. I, I think, um, that, but maybe we can talk about that later mm. as, as to where there are some flaws with the film. Um, but I, I mean, I do very much enjoy it, and, and the reason I want to talk about it now is that I think one of the big reasons I enjoy it is that John Cusack does a really good—I don't know about a great acting performance—but he is immensely likable, and that would be this would be a very hard film if you didn't like the the central character. Um, yeah, because on the face of it, he really isn't very likable at all. Well, th- this is where I think we might talk about Miami Blues a little, which I will, I will admit I haven't seen. Um, that, that was another of George Armitage's films. And that, that is basically, um, Alec Baldwin, uh, as a, well, let's just say a bad guy. (laughs) Um, petty criminal, uh, violent sociopath, and so on. Okay. Um, now is this a comedy or a thriller or what, what is, um, Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I think it's basically black comedy. Okay. Uh, and in large part, that's because you've got Alec Baldwin, this handsome guy who is being a complete bastard. Um, okay, yes. But, and, yeah, minor spoilers here, but you shouldn't be listening to this if, if you, if you're not, uh, if you're not worried, not thinking about spoilers. He dies at the end of that. Oh, okay. And, one of the things that Armitage said was he'd seen the audience uh, response and that they were really angry that he died, even though he was a, a utterly horrible person. Yes. Because he'd been shown, you know, trying to have a relationship, if not very much of one. Okay. That's, um, that is, uh, yeah, okay. That is very relevant, I think, to Grace Point Blank. And so as a result, um, when, uh, when uh, Armitage was working on this, he decided, okay, well, we, we want somebody who's going to survive. Yeah. And for that to work in terms of the uh, narrative structure. Okay. And there you really need someone. Someone who is... Uh, someone who murders for money, um, who uh, is pretty unfriendly and largely unlikable, you know, by his actions throughout a lot of the film, mm. expects to get his reward, you know, at the end of... I.e. Uh, his reward, unfortunately, being... Uh, his childhood sweetheart in this, um, and and you've still got to kind of like him as well. Mm. Um, well, I, I, I do think we go. I, I know it's a cliche that um, the producers want scripts about transformations and characters who change, but I do think that genuinely happens here. Yes, it's well done. Um, um, you can see him coming to the realizations that would make him absolutely rubbish as an assassin. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. You, you get the idea that his career as an assassin is over um, by the end of the film, um, because he, he sort of has an epiphany. And it is, I don't know, there is an interesting, again, we might as well d- dig in some details, an interesting moment. It's not that he suddenly realises something, it's that he notices the thing that he's been realising all along and just ignoring because it wasn't important. Right, yes, I think that is that is well done. Because he's not, yes, you're right, he doesn't have a fundamental gear shift in the film. He it, just... Yeah, and he, he, he is saying to Debbie... And yeah, you know, you know, no, I only kill bad people. Yeah. And he is realizing. To, okay, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but the, the way I see it, at least, he is realizing as he says that. Yeah. You know, I don't actually entirely believe this, and you clearly don't believe it, and that's not going to help. <laughs> well, there's a nice line in the film where he, he's kind of—I forget the exact details—but he's basically like, "No, I'm not a psychopath. Psychopaths <laughs> kill for—I I, I kill for money." Mm, that didn't sound as good as I meant. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a nice moment in the film. It's also interesting that he is not—he um, looks the part. Um, he is not an ultra competent assassin in the sense that all the assassinations we see him doing except the uh the messy pen fight that we probably want to talk about he pulls <laughs> us up one way or another um or I wouldn't say he the, does but the situation <laughs> well you know the one where he's dropping poison down into the throat and in the end he just runs down and guns the guy down um, mm-hmm. um uh, anyway i suppose i'm getting away from john cusack who i, I do think is a very interesting character and actor as well who's one of those few actors that has actually seems to have realized what hollywood is and moved away from it and it's, <laughs> it's been very prolific recently but not in films that most people have seen because he's doing a lot of director video stuff um or director streaming as yeah. i guess it is now but he is a, a very uh passionate political um commentator as well which is uh not something you often see in hollywood actors um well I, th- I think a lot of them jump onto the thing that everybody's jumping onto but yeah yes but he seems to have done it to the detriment of his career i guess mm. um but anyway i i suppose I don't, I, we're not here to talk too much about him other than i think he is to me I suppose I would have a bit of a man crush on John Cusack here. It's just his mannerisms. His, the fact that I'm not sure he's a great actor, if I'm frank, because he's playing a very similar character here to what I've seen him playing in other films, other than maybe being John Malkovich, where he's quite different. But he is... There's something about him that is immensely charismatic and yeah. suggests kind of hidden depths and intelligence that is not necessarily on display in his actions. I, I haven't seen him in a lot of things, um, but I think here, I, I don't know what it's, sorry, I don't know what his range is like, but I think he mm. gets inside this character very well indeed. Well, it's interesting, I, di- I didn't get round to it, but I did, was interested in watching War Inc., which is kind of a semi-sequel to this film, mm. that is much worse, re- um, much worse, uh, um, received. Um, I haven't, I've only watched the first five minutes. I probably will watch it, but it's interesting because it is sort of the sequel, but not quite. Um, or at least people inhabiting vaguely similar roles. Yes, yeah, exactly. But because it doesn't have the romantic comedy element, and, and really here, I mean, what we have is a romantic comedy mm. with a kind of Tarantino-esque spin on it. Um, <laughs> and, and this is the nine, this is 97. Almost every film is influenced in some way by Tarantino, or at least all the cool films are. <laughs> I do think this one 
This one is as well. It, it's trying to go for that kind of vibe and meshing it with a romantic comedy. Does it really well? I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I think it does a great job of it. Uh, the problem is, a romantic comedy is essentially a little bit absurd. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mel, mel, meld well with Tarantino comedy. Um, mm. I mean, I, I think this does better than uh, many romantic comedies in that. And the, the classic problem in, in a romance story is yes. if they are made for each other, why don't they get together on first meeting? And we do it, we do at least get an answer to that. We do. I think actually, I, I, I don't want to keep saying my problem with because genuinely <laughs> I really enjoyed Gross Point Blank. You know, I, when we decided we were going to do it, I was very excited because, um, I've wanted to watch it again. Um, I, uh, yeah, it, it does, um, it does explore their relationship a bit. We'll talk about Minnie Driver in a second, I think. Um, yeah. But, uh, because she's great in it too. But uh, almost my problem is, which I've had with some other films as well, I, I almost enjoying the romantic comedy element enough that I'm a bit disappointed when the Hitman bit it, uh, comes back into it. Um, we'll talk about the ending a bit more later. Um, mm. But I, I, do, I absolutely think on, as a romantic comedy, it, it works really well. And that is because of the charisma, the, the the chemistry, I think, between the two main actors and um, Minnie Driver here is a British British American actress. Um, I haven't seen her a load of other things, um, but she has done a lot of other things. Um, she's yeah. really good here. Born in London, raised in Barbados. Um, yeah. Oh, that's actually she's a good West Indian actor. <laughs> um, so she's his. Um, I mean, you can absolutely see why she is um, uh, kind of his. Not quite unrequited love, but he's someone who he has not forgotten in all this time. Um, yeah, though, even, I, I think this isn't, this isn't just woman as prize, though it would be nice if she had a female friend, but, um, yeah. I do think that purely internally to him, it's not that she's the one he got away, it's that she's the one he walked away from, and we find yeah. out why, and I, I love the reason why. But yes. that that's that is essentially his own problem, which has very little to do with he, who she is as a person now. And and part of what uh, makes this work for me is reconciling those two into, yes, I'm actually looking at the, per- the real person, not my re- memory of the person. It's, it's really good at delving into, you know... Um, I left, and that was my problem. And you know, here we are again. And I'm, I'm, and I suppose that's what I mean in a way. It works so well that I'm a bit disappointed when when it descends back into murder again. Because yeah, I, my, my memory uh, of the final sequence was actually quite a bit longer than the real thing. Uh, yeah, I uh, I had exactly the same experience because we were like down to about I don't know twenty minutes left, and I was thinking, oh goodness, I, I'm sure there was much more to it than this, and then it all happens quite quickly at the end. Mm. Um, but she is, yeah, she's very. Um, I I agree, she's not. There is much more to her than woman as prize, but I suppose that's one of my problems. Is it, right at the end of the film, it does sort of descend into that a bit. Yeah, so I found another thing, um, there's actually, uh, Armitage, uh, being interviewed a few years later. Um, they had, they, they tried a lot of different endings. Yes. And they had various sequences where, you know, after the, uh, shootout has finished, you know, them actually getting together and talking about things and deciding what to do next and so on. Yeah. And eventually, uh, yeah, they, they just 
couldn't get something they were happy with. Eventually, Joe Roth, uh, one of the Disney guys, yeah, uh, said, well, why don't you just go straight from You've Got My Blessing to the long shot at the end? And that's what they with, went uh, with. Slightly sort of unconvincing voiceover of, I say, forget about... Uh, forget <laughs> about forgive and just forget. Um, I think and much- it, it, it feels as if there ought to be another chunk of narrative there to me. We, I, I feel like we respect her intelligence enough to realise she's not just going to go along with that. And I think the problem is, because we care about these characters, it's hard to see a sane universe where she kind of accepts who he is. For that matter, yeah. what's he going to do now that he's no good as a hitman anymore? Exactly, yeah. It, it leads a, as a, as a comedy it works really well, but because it is, because it's enticed you with these characters and because you care about them, once, once we feel like we know her and we know him, you kind of feel you know how she would react if she found out he was a contract killer. Um, and she does react in a very, you know, that you don't get to have me scene, I think is brilliant. Mm. Um, she's still drawn to him, but she can't, you know, she's never going to forgive him for that. And I feel that, uh, I, I'm overreading it probably because it's a comedy, but the, the well, last this is, no, this is exactly what I ask for. I, I want a comedy where the characters also work. Yeah, and, and uh, I don't know how you feel, but to me, right at the end, it doesn't work that they it, ride it, off together. It's that sudden whipsaw. I mean, it, it could... Well, I, I say it could be made to work, but clearly they tried various ways of making it work, and they couldn't get anything they were happy with, so... No, even with even with the charisma of John Cusack and the chemistry they have together, it's hard to see past that kind of... I mean, I, I love that it keeps the romantic comedy at the end, that where he's doing his kind of pathos and his, his, um, his kind of, this is the realisation I've come to, he's intermittently shooting mm. guys, you know, and, you know, right at the end of the shootout. Yeah. It's nicely done that he's, he's doing that exposition that you get at the end of every John Hughes film, but he's doing it during a Tarantino-style <laughs> shootout, um, <laughs> which I think is brilliant. It's just very hard to end the film after that, mm. and it ends almost immediately after that, exactly as you say, very abruptly, and that, it, in the parlance of the time, it doesn't quite stick the landing. I don't know how they could have done, but it, it, for me now, and I don't remember feeling that the first time I watched it. Mm, same here. It, it, it doesn't really, but there is a jarring to it. Um, I, I think, which, to be fair, I, I have got uh, more picky than I was uh, 30 odd years ago. 25 years ago. <laughs> 25 years. We're not quite 30. 25 years ago. Um, well, so we focused on the relationship a bit. We both really like it. Oh, there, there, there are two minor parts that I really want to call out. Yes, I think we should talk about some of the other people. I, I'm guessing we might have the same ones, one of them being Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As, I mean, he's the closest thing this film has to a villain. Yes. And he does such a beautiful job of... I get, I'm, I'm the friendly guy. Yeah. And there is a two millimeter thick layer of friendly guy over, over this endoskeletal chassis of menace. He's amazing <laughs> because I, you know, of course, probably we both, we've seen him in other things, but we both remember him mainly as Ray's dance and Ghostbusters, but where he is genuinely a, a, a warm and cuddly guy. Mm. And here, he is a psychopath playing a warm and cuddly guy and the difference is very visible on screen. 
It is so well done. He's amazing in this film. Yeah, a uh, fr- friend of the show and occasional co-host Marianne Johansson uh, said in her original review, he hasn't been this old since Ghostbusters, and I would agree with that. I mean, that was yeah. the first thing I became aware of him in. Um, I don't know yeah. if Saturday Night Live was ever broadcast in the UK, but I didn't see it. Uh, I think so, he's very good in trading places. But too. yeah, that was where I saw him first, and I thought he was okay in other things, but in Ghostbusters he's great. Yeah. And in this, he's great. He's not in it. I've seen him in other things where I felt he's phoning this in a bit. But here he is, uh, yeah, there's some, he's kind of ticks and kind of his slight social awkwardness, even though he's trying to be friendly. I don't know quite how he does it, but yeah, he just brings menacing and friendly and kind of faux chumminess. I mean, the, the, the first time you see him, you instantly realise, even before he does anything, this is not your friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it reminds you of, uh, again, I don't want to get in trouble, but I, I suspect we've all met people like this at work, that kind of <laughs> faux chumminess, trying to get exactly what they need out of the situation and mm. making it sound like it's your your idea, but being also not very good at it either. And so just, <laughs> I just he's he's really, um, yeah, Dan Aykroyd is, is phenomenal in this. I, I agree. I think he's... And it's, it's a fairly small part. What's he got, some three or four scenes? Yeah, yeah, and I, I like that the film also kind of mocks him via the medium of the two, uh, they NSA agents. Yeah. Got um, uh, they kind of look at him from a distance as well, and, and they look at Martin Blank as well, so they give you another perspective that the film's not afraid to show this is what they think. I do, on, on the, on a side note, those NSA agents, I don't know, they're, they're just sudden shooting at the end felt a bit, I don't know gratuitous or pointless or oh, well, what was the point of that or that subplot then let's wrap that up mm. I mean looking at them now looking at the films we've been watching for this I'm wondering if that's maybe a, a, a more direct Tarantino influence I, th- I think you are. I think it was supposed to be a shocking but it's just such a throwaway but, thing. but also the white guy and the black guy shooting the shit in the car yeah oh yes you could be right yes exactly and, and talking about Pop culture and, and reflecting, yeah, yeah. I mean, it works. I like it. I think fun, that one of them being um, Hank Azaria, um, uh, it crops up in, in many other things. Um, uh, so, who was your? I'm, I'm going to uh, internally guess. <laughs> well, it's, it's quite quite easy if you know me, uh, Marcella. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, 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 so this is uh, Martin's secretary, factotum, general administrator. Yeah, she, she is amazing, I must say. Yeah. And played by uh, John Cusack's older sister, Joan. She's a phenomenal actress in a number of other things as well. Um, she also says snafu in an amazing way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, I admit it, I have fashion tendencies, and that frogged jacket is just lovely. Yeah, so, yeah. Even though they, um, <laughs> even though Martin Blank makes uh, makes a joke of it. Um, the, but but again, she doesn't have a lot of scenes. But the ones she's in, she's just in charge of. Yes. Uh, particularly, yes. I, I'm I'm on the phone to you while, while I am uh, spreading the petrol around to uh, cover our tracks <laughs> yeah. in the office. She's very much again. Uh, all these years later, she very much stood out to me. Um, I didn't. In fact, I remember her being great in it. I hadn't remembered how good Dan Aykroyd was, but I had. She was a character that really stood out to me. Um, I mean, I'd like to see the film about her. 
But Hopefully, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. yeah. And he does right by her, and I don't know if that's the um, saving the saving the cat moment for Martin Blank, but he does the, uh, <laughs> he does the he does the right thing for Marcella. Um, the, the other character I wanted to shout out was Al, Alan Arkin's um, psychiatrist because I think he mm. does a great job of the angsty kind of. Uh, I, yeah, he didn't he, didn't grab me in quite the same way, but yes. It certainly works. No, fair enough. I, I just love the, the, the kind of gentle mocking of the whole therapy, how they have to discuss in a therapy way. Mm. I can't be your therapist. I'm terrified you're going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a really nice... All, all those comedic ones. And again, it came out of the... Um, it came out of the characters and it all worked. And I just seeing... I don't know, just seeing John Cusack does that great kind of angsty sitting on the couch... I need to get these feelings out, but um, but I'm also I am going to kill you if you. The, the, this clearly isn't working, but I'm not going to admit that. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's um, there's a lot about this film that works brilliantly. I must say, um, and, and that is one of them too. I uh, uh, I not I'm not sure, and maybe this is this is where I I suppose I want to talk about Fargo a bit. What Fargo does brilliantly it has. It has the the sort of comedy elements. It has the interesting characters, and it has the kind of scene still scene stealing bit characters. Um, what it gets right, I feel better than Gross Point Blank is the sudden tonal shifts in Fargo. Mm. You know, we're suddenly in a horror film. We're suddenly, like, holy shit, what's happened here? And it, it suddenly uh, here, I think it's less well handled, and and maybe that's why we we struggle a bit with it. Um, uh, Perhaps, uh, yeah. And I also think maybe Fargo doesn't have a lot of action in it, but the action sequences in Grace Point Blank, I'm not sure of that. Well, ha- aside from the pen fights, mm. um, the the final shootout it just seems a bit rushed and muddled in a way that I'd sort of I hadn't yeah, quite remembered it. The, the the convenience store shootout is basically a comedy shootout. Yes. And here, here is here is all this ammunition being expended, and nobody gets hit. Exactly. And this guy's playing Doom and not really listening to what's going. Yeah. Exactly. Did they ever so make an arcade cabinet of Doom? I don't didn't think they did. Well, I assumed they had, but only because I'd seen this film. I don't recall. That that was kind of in the de- towards the end of where arcade cabinets were worth having because of things like Doom, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I, I I agree with you. The first one works. Not as a shootout, but as a like a little sort of comedy scene. Mm. But the the final shootout, I don't. I, I like the moments of comedy in it, but as an action sequence, I think we've seen a lot better in our it's, time on Ribbon of Memes. It's it's lacking meat. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And and even the kind of final scene of um, Dan Aykroyd's character. Um, uh, it's it's well done, and it, it is shocking, I suppose, in a way that it's supposed to be. But it just it it, it all feels a bit rushed and throwaway in a way mm. that, but not quite, not quite in the way that it just doesn't feel as well handled. I, I wonder if it's perhaps that the balance has been very even between the romantic story and the assassin story. Yes, and now we're coming down completely on the romantic side. Yes, yeah, and, and then we've suddenly got to wrap this all up with um, with uh, a bit of ultraviolence, really. Um, <laughs> the the fight that does work for me is the one in the uh, in the school mm. with the uh, the French 
I don't know, are you trying to say Russian? But he's the French agent, I believe, in the film. Um, uh, where we get the uh, excellent use of Chekhov's pen, which was <laughs> John. <laughs> yeah, uh, though, though also, um, that, that, that guy is played by uh, Benny Urquides, uh, who is um, a yeah, kickboxing world champion, who, who yes. was also Cusack's kickboxing trainer uh, when he started for Say Anything. And, and they, they continued to work together. Oh wow! Well, that might maybe that's partly why it works quite well. That that one fulfills a lot of our um, uh, our little check boxes in that they are they use the space that they have and they use mm. the equipment that they have and they use what is to hand. Um, there, there, there's a saying on the Steve Jackson Games GURPS forums of the combat that takes place on an infinite featureless plane. <laughs> as an example of yeah but actual combats don't happen like that it, it's easy to model in game terms but <laughs> yes i i think you're quite and, and here the, the 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 combats we tend to the the fights we tend to respond better to or i don't know if they're always in confined spaces but they're in very definite environments and those environments are used yeah it, if fight. it were happening 30 feet away it would be a different fight Yes, exactly. Though also, yeah. also to be fair, I think it's beautifully set up by I've forgotten the guy's name now. Uh, the the drunk aggressive guy. Oh yeah. The, the confrontation with him, which which like completely defuses by getting him to talk about his poetry. I mean, that's beautiful. Yeah, that is, and that's a lovely comedy. To, and, and you you get to see um, uh, Minnie Driver's character see that and watch that get diffused, and she doesn't see what happens immediately. That's a great bit. That I, in fact, that was one of the things that I remembered down through the years. That, mm. do, you, do you think there's something between me and you? It's not. <laughs> <laughs> These are my words. It's, it's a nice moment. Yes. Yeah, that that is a really good part of the film. Uh, little things. I mean, okay, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure that's a Minox he's using, but it looks awfully like a Minox. And <laughs> uh, that that is the classic spy camera. <laughs> uh, right. Yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The, my overall feeling was that the story is is okay, and then the mm. cast makes it great when they get a chance to. Yes, I I absolutely agree. And and I, you, you could film this with average okay actors and it would not be a film that i was remembering however many years after i first saw it yeah i think it just wouldn't work and, and really it's that central charisma of the two mains uh characters like marcella um and uh, dan Aykroyd's character as well and um alan arkin's character i, I they, they all there there is a third cusack sibling in this as well of course very briefly isn't yeah. yeah she has a she has a cameo drunken anne Drun oh, yes. amy i think it was yeah and, and that took me out a bit, actually, because I she she like, looks a lot like Marcella. I, I thought at yes, first it exactly. might be Marcella. It does. It, yes, exactly. There is a definite Cusack look to them, <laughs> to them all, but particularly, yeah, the two sisters um, that took me out of it too. Um, have you been to any reunions yourself? Did you feel no. caught the? I have been to a, a couple of reunions, um, and I must say, it does capture that kind of slightly depressed. Uh, I, I, angst, kind of existential crisis that it triggers with you. I, th I thought it did a, a very good job. I, that had clearly been written by someone who had just been to it. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was very well done. Yeah, well, as I say, it's a thing that just never really has any appeal to me. I, I, I tend to feel that the people you meet at school are very much like family and that you don't get a choice in the matter. And uh, yeah. you know, some of them you will make friends with and keep up with later, and I do. And the rest of them, well, you don't particularly. And 
Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, the, you can't choose your family, but you can choose whether you go back to your high school reunion. Um, and maybe Martin Blank shouldn't. But it turns out all right. <laughs> well, it, it's very clear that um, Marcella absolutely is setting things up as though he must. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I love that she's very much the power behind the throne here um, and, and works it all out for him. I did, that took me out of it a little bit as well. You know, he is, uh, although he hasn't actually had a huge amount of success, he, he comes across as this ultra competent assassin. Mm. But he doesn't even open the envelope of who he's actually going to kill until mm. been there a day or so. It, uh, I know it works as a kind of, uh, who is this? But it, he, he's supposed to have planned for like a week or so before this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that is the, um, the action plot being subordinated to the comedy plot. I, as they, they don't always fit well together, but it, it is unfortunate. I agree. You just, yeah, you're never going to believe that he's going to go across the country to a mark that he hasn't even. He hasn't even investigated yet. I mean, if if he'd never met her father back in the day, then maybe, but obviously he did. So, another thing I I, I would like to call out in passing is the soundtrack, because this is not particularly my music. It's a couple of... I I don't really have my music. I have particular songs rather than everything that came out this year. Um, But the way the film uses it it makes it feel as though this is somebody's music, and I get that feeling, even though that isn't a thing I personally experience. Yes, I agree. I, I could almost—I I don't think I did buy Grace Point Blank soundtrack, but I could almost see when doing that because, yeah, it, it does a great job of evoking a time and space uh, in that way, and a lot of it is these old John Hughes comedies as well that uh, mm. that he talks about. Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's a lot to like about Gross Point Blank, from the soundtrack to the to the acting, the story. I think a bit less so, and the ending a bit less so. Overall, I, I, I do enjoy it a very great deal. Yeah, um, looking at uh, that uh, George Armitage interview, one of one of the things he said about it was um, that they effectively shot three separate versions of it. They they did a lot of reshoots and just generally trying things in different ways. Uh, what he described it was, uh, as was the, st- the script as written, a mildly understated version and a completely over-the-top version. And usually they ended up editing in the completely over-the-top version in the final cut. That's... It doesn't feel that way, though, does it? Um, well, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't, I, th- I think, because it, it's consistent in, in its tone. Yeah. It's, it's not saying, you know, OK, let's have a comedy moment now. That, that each, each thing flows out of the previous thing, which, which I, I think is, is a sign of a good narrative. I mean, the story's, uh, the story is kind of fantastical and, and largely unbelievable and we kind of sold it by the, by the characters. But yeah, maybe, I suppose maybe on reflection, you know, Dan Aykroyd's tics and John Cusack's kind of, uh, angst are probably dialed up to the max if I think about it, but I, <laughs> I hadn't really considered that before. I suppose I tend to think of as um, over the top as kind of mugging for the camera. I just no one mm. does that really here. Yeah, I mean, so, certainly Dan Aykroyd has in other parts. Yes, absolutely. Yes, uh, he certainly is capable of uh, bad acting performances, unfortunately, but this is definitely not one of them. The the other thing that did did occur to me is um John Rogers who did um Leverage and The Librarians and ver- various other uh interesting TV shows. He's also done uh, various uh, comics and stuff. Um talks about Crime World as a concept. 
Right. And that is clearly where this film starts. You know, we are in crime world. Everybody in it understands how these things work. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, yes, on, on one level, it is the, uh, Martin, Martin and Debbie trying to connect across that gap, but it's also yeah. Martin and all the people Martin knows and Debbie and all the normal people. Yes. Running into each other. And the kind of the meshing of the, I, I think the collision of the two genres almost is, is brilliantly handled. It's, it's very well done. It's just, it seems like a very hard, a hard way to end that collision really in anything other than a bloodbath. Yeah. Well, and as we've said, there are some rough edges, but I, th- I think it's one that works. Yeah, yeah. Well, at the risk of making quite a short episode, because um, <laughs> we thought we might, because we we didn't have too too many worries about this. I, I'm going to ask the question: do, do you think it's a masterpiece, Grove Point Blake? Yes, I do. I mean, with the usual proviso that very little is perfect, and the, and this is not perfect, as as we've just okay. been saying. But it, it is definitely if it was uh, one when I started seriously building a film collection, it was one of the first films I got hold of. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is one I would not want to be without. Yes. I I feel... Uh, my gut feeling is I want it to be a masterpiece because I really like it. My gut <laughs> feeling is I'm not quite... I'm not quite there with, is it? it it's not quite... It's got a few too many rough edges. Mm. That said, exactly as you... T- it, it, um, I remember it very fondly. I would certainly watch it again. Um... I I really really like it. I just, I'm not sure I can quite. I suppose one of our measurements is was this film very influential? And it it feels to me more influenced by than influential. Um, it feels like it, it it's taking, as you say, Crime World and uh, and John Hughes comedies and, and jamming them together, which is innovative. But I'm not sure it influenced a lot of other things later. So I mean, you, you could call it that whole uh, Gen X meets the real world. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah, okay, I mean, I've, presumably this sort of thing is, was meant to appeal to me and so I wouldn't notice it. I, I would just think of this as the way things are. But I, I can't offhand at least think of a whole lot of films in that style. No, exactly, yeah. I, I mean, there, there's been a certain amount of, of good snarky stuff, some which we'll come on to uh, in a few episodes' time, but, uh, yeah. I do, I, oh, I feel bad saying it's not a masterpiece because I flipping love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind being pushed over the edge into it. But uh, it's it's very good. It's very good. And and the actors, the acting performances are just some of the some of the most fun we've seen. I don't know about the best, but so yeah, there, there is there is definitely a feeling one can get with or, with some films of the people involved are having fun, and sometimes yeah. this is completely false. Yes. As in Some Like It Hot, which apparently was a complete chore whenever Marilyn was anywhere near the set. Yes, but I it still it, feels as if they're having fun. There's, there's, there's kind of a zinginess to it that yes, yeah. make, you feel like that these people enjoying themselves together. Um, and that, yeah, you get that here as well. And also it's very watchable and yeah, it, it's, it's a great film. Yeah. And okay, so yeah, that, that scene with the baby should be trite. I, I wanted to. Bring, I was going to mention that earlier. Actually, I wasn't sure how you felt about it, but something about John Cusack's reactions just—it's it, well done. I, you do get the feeling things are occurring to him that hadn't before. Mm. And it's yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. That should be a trash. You should be like, oh, what is this doing here? But it—I—I I wouldn't want the film without that moment in. Yeah. I think it's fine. 
So, yeah, maybe a masterpiece, maybe not, but but definitely a film we like. Absolutely, absolutely agreed. Well, I think that about uh, very shortly, for a short episode, rounds us out for 1997 as we approach the millennium. And our, our anniversary of Ribbon of Memes, but uh, not not for a few episodes yet, I think. But we're getting there. Ah, uh, you can never go home again, but you can shop there. <laughs> Good night, everyone. <laughs>